ladies and gentlemen, the real Don Steele. KHJ Los Angeles. Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest is passionate about radio, particularly radio of a certain era, and specifically a radio station from that era. If you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, you know that a co-star of that picture was the music on the radio. The music, the jingles, the DJs. Well, my guest, Woody Gullart, grew up in that era and experienced the radio culture of that time and has written about it in his book, KHJ Los Angeles, Boss Radio Forever, 1960s Rock and Roll History, which is available on Amazon. For everything about Woody Gullart, Go to BossRadioForever.com and follow him on Facebook at Boss Radio KHJ. Woody, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Ira. Your book is about a place in time, Los Angeles, and a radio station in that time, KHJ. Big question, what made KHJ special compared to the other radio stations in that market? Well, at that time, and we're talking about 1965, right? Rock and roll was very new, and the businesses that owned radio stations, big companies like RKO, which owned KHJ, they did not really believe in rock and roll as something that would succeed in the sense of a business. You know, radio broadcasting is mainly commercial, you know, but... Companies like RKO and others at that time did not believe that rock and roll would be successful on the radio because it only had been around for really the 52, 53, 1952, 1953, thereabouts. So KHJ came along and the people behind it decided they're going to just jump both feet into rock and roll radio. And that's what they did. And it was a tremendous success in Los Angeles. There were other radio stations at the time, KRLA, KFWB, of course, had even more of a history with with rock and roll initially. Yet there was something special about KHJ. If you had to pinpoint what that difference was based on your own research and really living it, what would that be? Well, the the main guy, the, the man behind All of that is Bill Drake, and that's not his real name, but Philip Yarbrough is his real name. But Bill Drake, as he was known in the biz, right, his idea was just to play more music. And in fact, you may have heard jingles that sang. I won't sing it here, of course, but they sang more music, KHJ, and that was, it was a big difference. They played more songs, more records each hour than anybody else. And that meant less commercials. That meant less talking on the part of the the air personalities. But it was mostly, mostly more music. And yet the personalities they had complemented the music, even though they had shorter amount of time on air to talk about things. It seemed to work within that format and was obviously very popular and had has an impact even to today, clearly, as I mentioned about the movie reference, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If you want to look at it from a historic point of view, it would seem that the station represented something that other radio stations did not. I know it's a tough question. I'm trying to get what specifically was it about KHJ, the approach of Bill Drake and others, 
the mix of music and air personalities, the jingles, which were very important. What was it that separated it from KRLA or KFWB or other rock stations, not only in that market, but in other markets? And as we'll talk about, that format was used in other markets as well. Well, regarding the air personalities first, the two most famous, even now, very many years later, and they are no longer living, Robert W. Morgan, he was on in the morning, he was the morning man, and the real Don Steele, he was on in the afternoon, uh, heading into drive time. And those two guys had worked elsewhere. Steele had been in the Bay Area and other San Francisco Bay Area and other radio stations. Morgan was from the Midwest. Um, Steele was a a native-born Hollywood guy, if you can believe it, whereas Morgan was from the Midwest. But the two guys had very distinctive voices and very distinctive personalities. And for some reason, they were ideally suited to fit the format, which was less talk, less commercials, and more music. There are famous names you may, people who are familiar with other markets, San Francisco, I already mentioned. There are people who are known, and they are no longer living either, but they are known and remembered because they were air personalities. One of the more famous ones is Wolfman Jack, who was broadcasting out of Mexico, and he's sort of transformed himself from just a radio just <laughs> a radio personality into a you know he was a movie star he was in film as well but for the most part people from who were on the radio in the 1960s are forgotten today because they all sort of blended in together whereas Morgan and Steele were very different in their approach so i would credit them as air personalities very talented men who knew how to use their voices and they knew how to push a personality through no matter what. They were really excellent. From your research and from your point of view, how important were the jingles that were recorded by the Johnny Man singers and featured no music? It was acapella. Yeah, it was, well, and that was the key difference. It was acapella. And if you can think back, this seems strange to say, but There were jingles that would, in some cases, be like 30 seconds, which is a long time. You know, commercials are 30 seconds. So you have 30 seconds worth of singing and, uh, you know, call letters and city and some kind of slogan. And even up to a minute worth a jingle that runs 60 seconds. Think of it. It's just crazy. It was just excessive. So Drake comes in and his people say, we're going to do more music. We're going to play more songs than any other radio station. And that meant the jingles had to be short. Some of them were really only like five or six seconds compared to 30 seconds or 60 seconds singing on and on and on. Oh, the ocean is blue. blue. How are you? Well, no, with KHJ's jingles, They were very to the point. They were so catchy and they were so good that they could could be done a cappella. And also the decision to use short jingles, short commentary by the air personalities, and more music 
all seem to fit together. And again, I mentioned in the beginning about a specific place and time. And the reason I did that was I'm just thinking that today, would that kind of format work in today's world, or is it impossible just because it was a different period of time? Well, I really do. I agree that it is impossible for any kind of broadcast, radio, that is to say, entertainment in the 21st century today to be successful in that same way. And the first reason is popular culture, let's call it that, pop culture, uh, you know, popular music, people who are well-known celebrities in the popular culture. All of that was transmitted in 1965 by radio broadcasting and AM radio stations, which means they were not in stereo and they had static, but AM was the king of radio in those days. It it was the way, the one way television was uh, beginning to be successful in terms of ratings in the in the 60s but radio am radio was the way that popular culture was transmitted and that is what made everything work many years later joni mitchell wrote a song and included the phrase the star maker machinery and uh, the song is free men in paris but star maker machinery is a very good description of all of that it was uh, record companies. It was celebrities like Sonny and Cher, Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. All of them fit together. And how they got what they did out to the world was AM radio, at least in the United States. So today, we don't need AM. <laughs> I would be so bold as to say we don't need AM radio for popular culture. We have YouTube, and we have the internet, and we have digital devices that you carry around, and you can play music of your choice. So you don't need AM radio. So no, I don't think it would be successful today in the 21st century. That kind of approach would not work as a business. Tell us a little bit about your background, Woody, why you decided to write the book, and how you became interested in, well, you lived it, so I'll let you tell the story. Well, all right, so 1965, I was age 15. So you can do the math and figure out how old is this guy today? Oh, no. But in 1965, I was 15 years of age. I did not live in Los Angeles at that time. I lived in San Luis Obispo, California, Say that ten times fast, <laughs> and, and that San Luis too, Obispo, San Luis Obispo. No, I can't. I can't do go. it. There you go. You took the challenge. I did. Um, it, it's two hundred miles north of Los Angeles, and uh, I think Oprah Winfrey at one point recently in the you know last five or ten years said it is the happiest place in California. Well, okay, I don't know. It wasn't happy when I lived there. It was slow. The initials are S-L-O. And if you say the initials, what does it spell? Slow. So I wanted to get out of San Luis Obispo. And we could not hear KHJ. You could not. AM radio does not travel great distances compared to FM radio, which bounces off of the 
the ionosphere or whatever. Well, actually, actually, Woody, I would disagree with you. It's the other way around. AM bounces off the ionosphere, which is why you could hear KFI radio throughout the half of the United States at night. I'm sorry. Yes, you are. You're correct. The KHJ was at 93, 930 kilohertz. And where I live, there was another radio station on the dial, the AM dial at 920. So you can't have one station on 920 and one at 930. You couldn't hear them both. So the local flanked out KHJ. So we could never hear KHJ. We could hear KRLA, which was uh, 1110. And so you're right. I got it mixed up. AM That's okay. And, but we could not. So I never heard KHJ live. I only heard it on tape. And I was a journalism major starting around 1970. And that's when I first was interested in radio. And I became interested in KHJ because it was very popular in Los Angeles. And all of us who lived in San Luis Obispo looked to Los Angeles as the place where we wanted to go. We all wanted, we fantasized about working there. But of course, most of us never did. I was very, very lucky. I got hired to work in Los Angeles in 1973 at an FM radio station. And that is where I met Bill Drake. Now, he's the guy that created the success for Boss Radio KHJ about a decade earlier. So I never heard KHJ, never worked at KHJ. I was too young. I was 15. But I did meet Bill Drake at, when I was, I think I was 23 at the time. Uh, and that's how I became interested in, once I met him, I thought, you know, maybe this is something that would be good to preserve for history to write about. So that's what I ended up doing. I went to graduate school. I did a crazy, crazy thing. I studied Bill Drake in graduate school. Can you imagine this guy? I walked in at graduate school and said, I want to study this guy named Bill Drake. And they looked at me like, what? (laughs) Why why would anyone do that? But they said yes. And the rest, as we say, it's history. Well, was Bill Drake aware that you were going to be working on a, on a study of him? In other words, did he did you because you met him first and then you decided to study him? Did you later connect with him and say, "Hey, I'm studying you and I'd like to do some interviews?" Oh yeah, I was very honest. Um, well, all right. So I'm in Los Angeles. That's the where the FM radio station was. Actually, in Hollywood. Actually. You know, think of it, a 23-year-old guy working on a radio station in Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard, of all things. It was just beyond incredible for a young man to be working in Hollywood, Sunset Boulevard, 12th floor, Bill Drake, all of that. So I got fired. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, before you got fired, tell us, because the one thing you left out, and I have to insist that you tell us, because many of my listeners would know, once you tell us, the call letters of the station you work for, you said it was an FM radio station on Sunset. Yes, um, it was at 100.3 on the FM dial. And there was, uh, in California, previous to that, there was a James Gabbert is the guy's name he created in San Francisco 
K101, and you and you know, everyone knows, you can't have numbers in call letters. So Gabbert in San Francisco had K101, but the call letters were K-I-O-I, San Francisco. And the trick was to use letters of the alphabet, couldn't use numbers, letters of the alphabet to convey the 101 FM dial position for K101. So Los Angeles, where I worked, the station was at 100. So we wanted to be known as K100, but you couldn't have letters. I mean, you couldn't have numbers. So it was a terrible call letters, K-I-Q-Q. It's like, yeah, that conveys K100, doesn't it? No. <laughs> but the other, the more desirable call letters, K-I-O-O, those were already taken by somebody else. So you can't have numbers. And if someone already had taken it, you couldn't have it. So we were K-I-Q-Q, FM, Los Angeles. So and when no- you were when you were working there, Woody, were you at the same time studying or was it two separate periods of time? No, no, two separate. I mean, uh, not shortly thereafter. I went to work at K100. Bill Drake was hired and his people came in and they fired everybody except me and a bookkeeper. And I couldn't figure out, you know, I was the production guy. I couldn't figure out why I was kept on, but I guess they wanted me. I concluded they wanted me to help train them on how to do production in stereo because we you know am was not in stereo at that time fm only and it's a different thing producing audio in stereo is a very different thing uh, more complicated and so forth so they kept me for a while and then they fired me too so i was devastated because i loved working with the real don Steele and bill drake but i you know it was not meant to be they they fired me so i left los angeles and went to graduate school way up north humboldt state university in arcata california no one's ever heard of that yes you have (laughs) Um, it's in humboldt county and it is about as far as you can go in california and still be in California and not be in Oregon. But I went up there and went to graduate school, and that's where I convinced my advisors to let me study Bill Drake and his programming. And I got in touch with Drake. He said yes, he would talk to me because he hated doing interviews, but because people would screw with what he said and just you know misquote him and so forth. So. I came along and said, look, I'll be honest. I will talk to you, say what you want to say. I won't cut anything out. And he agreed. And after him, everyone else came in line who also agreed. And I talked to a lot of people who are no longer living. And I was the only one that ever talked to any of these people. So I had a huge, at the time I didn't know it, but I had a huge responsibility to be accurate and to be honest with what I was telling so you were writing first a thesis and then a book? Is that the sequence? Yeah. I mean, no one in their right mind would say, oh, I'm going to write a book about rock and roll radio because there was nothing at the time. One of the more famous ones that came was Ben Fong Torres. He wrote at the time for Rolling Stone, and he wrote a book about Top 40 Radio. And I forget the year that it was published, but it was in the 70s after I did my thesis. 
So there was very little. And uh, Claude Hall, who also was pretty well known. For Billboard magazine. Yes, Billboard. He is no longer living. Uh, Torres, Ben Fong Torres is still living. But there was nothing written. You know, in those days, people didn't write books about important present day things, except like Watergate or Richard Nixon, you know, that kind of stuff, but not popular culture. There was very little. So I had nothing to go on other than interviews. It was all primary research. And I found it was very exciting because people told me things that I thought were kind of strange. And in some cases I thought were lies, but but I I put everything together anyway. Now, did you and, record, Woody, did you record these interviews or did you just write them as you interviewed them? Or, or do you have them on tape or on digital at this point? I did record them. I used a cassette recorder and I recorded them. I do have some of them, but not all. It makes me very sad that I did not keep the tapes I made of Ron Jacobs. He's a very crucial player. He was the program director. He is no longer living. And I interviewed Ron Jacobs in uh, La Jolla, California, in San Diego area, uh, many hours on tape. And I don't know what was going through my mind. Maybe I lost the tapes or I don't know, but I don't have those anymore. I have some other ones. I have Bill Drake still, the tapes of Bill Drake. I'm happy I still have those. Do you think because of your website, and I mentioned about BossRadioForever.com, which has an interesting history of KHJ on there, but do you think you might eventually post some of those raw interviews with Bill Drake and others as part of your contribution to, uh, let us say, radio culture? Well, in some, in some ways, I have done extended, you know, in some fashion, I've done extended reporting of the actual unedited words in the in the book that, that you mentioned that's available on Amazon, I do have extended comments from both Bill Drake and Ron Jacobs. So if people are interested in that, there's pages and pages, hundreds and hundreds of words from Bill Drake himself, primary source material. And right. Also- but I'm thinking, but I think even posting some of the audio files of the interviews would give them a sense of what he sounded like. Yeah, I I agree. I just think it. I don't know. To me, it think it, it adds to the mystique. To you know, like we don't have any tape of Abraham Lincoln. It's a trick question because they didn't have tape in those days. So I don't know. I just think it adds to the mystique to not reveal what these guys sounded like. Well, I, I would view it more as a supplement to your book, which again is called KHJ Los Angeles. Boss Radio Forever, 1960s Rock and Roll Radio History. I would think it would just supplement that material. You don't necessarily have to post all of the interview, but just little segments or snippets so people get a sense of what he sounded like. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I may have to consider that. Yeah, I think it would personalize the man, and I know there are, there are audio recordings of him talking and maybe even some video out somewhere, but I think just to supplement your material, I think if people read your book. And speaking of your book, have you had a reaction from people, A, that lived in that era, and two, have you had a reaction from people who were too young to be around during that time, but still got a sense of what it was like by reading your book? Well, the first reaction was from Ron Jacobs. He, as I said, is one of the uh, 
essential players. He was the program director of KHJ. And he was living, he went back to his native Hawaii. I'm trying to remember the sequence. But he left California and went back to Hawaii. And a newspaper in Southern California in Santa Ana, the Orange County Register, did a story about me and my thesis, right? So here I am. I'm, I'm at the time in graduate school again. I went on to another graduate program. I am in Indiana, Bloomington, Indiana, and I get um, email from Orange County Register, a guy who's a radio columnist there, and he said he's quoted me and he's quoted Ron Jacobs saying that I didn't know anything and that I simply wrote a minor report and it was incredible. Jacobs was going after me, after my credibility, saying, well, Woody doesn't know anything. He wasn't in Los Angeles at KHJ in 1965. What does he know? You know, come on. It was, if someone were to say, you can't write a book about Abraham Lincoln unless you were alive with him, then that would cut out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books, good books that were written about Abraham Lincoln. So, it doesn't matter if you're alive at the time something happens, if you do your homework. Uh, I mean, you can't talk to dead people, of course, but <laughs> I haven't figured out how to do that. Um, but you can go back and find what they wrote and other things in history. But Drake and all those people were still alive. I was able to interview them. So it didn't matter that I was not at KHJ in 1965. That's good. I, I don't get that anyway, because most historians are not around writing about yeah. it. Yeah, that makes well, no sense. Why do you think he took that stance, especially okay, if you interviewed him? This is, you, this is a dangerous question. <laughs> well, that's why I asked it. <laughs> that's right, right. All right, here we go. Ron Jacobs, type A personality. Like, if they should probably rename it the Ron Jacobs personality. Because he was so incendiary. He could go from zero to 300 on the scale of anger in two seconds. He was a very, very angry man. And I don't know why, but he was a native of Hawaii before it was a state. Very talented, genius level man, I would say. Very talented, but he was so, so angry. Did I say he was angry? <laughs> you did, but you did interview him, though, as part of your thesis, correct? Yeah, and I don't know. He Okay, I do know, because he told me, and it was obvious at the time, that he used cannabis. Uh, when I interviewed him in, uh, was it 1970-something, I flew to San Diego and interviewed him, and he was using cannabis at the time. He was using cannabis before. He was using cannabis in the 60s. Who cares? But people that are into cannabis over time become, they express themselves more freely, I found. And so Jacobs would easily go from zero to 300, like I said, in anger because of being someone who used cannabis. He was just comfortable with his expression of his feelings. Interesting. What was your take on the whole stable of air personalities 
on KH Day at that time. You mentioned the real Don Steele. You mentioned Robert W. Morgan. Those were the mainstays. There were also a lot of other air personalities and including news reporters at the time. What was your take on that whole entity as KHJ, not just the two mainstays? Well, there were people, air personalities, Sam Riddle, you may have heard, well, you have, but others listening may have heard of him. He unfortunately recently died. Sam Riddle was the last of the original Boss Radio air personalities. He was still living very until recently. So there's him, there's Roger Christian, who uh, he's no longer living. Roger Christian wrote music, songs for the Beach Boys and for Jan and Dean. So he was very connected in the creative community. Other people probably are not remembered. I'm trying to think. Johnny Williams was the overnight guy. Maybe remembered. I'm not sure. If you have tapes of Johnny Williams... That's a good thing. But the, the famous ones were Robert W. Morgan and the real Don Steele. And I worked with both of them at K100. Also, Roger Christian was at K100 as well. So I got to work with him. And so I think these were all people who were, you know, they were good actors in the sense of even if you were having a bad day, even if you were grumpy, like Morgan was really grumpy all of the time. You know, I think... If you get up at the uh, in the dark of night to come to work every day of your life, you're going to be grumpy. And so he was grumpy, but he hit it very well. He was very funny, good sense of humor. Or Steele, on the other hand, was so relaxed. He acted frenetic, but he was so relaxed in real life. He was a wonderful person, and I miss working with him. I don't think I will ever ever encounter anyone as uniquely talented as Steele. The rest were, I think, not so distinctive. But they were carried along by the format, weren't they? Yes, it was the music, and they had promotions. You know, they had Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl promotions at KHJ. They gave away a 1965 Mustang. Can you believe giving away a brand new... I think the Mustang first came out in 1965, and they gave one away in uh, L.A. at at KHJ. Last question, but it will be somewhat of an inside question, and that is, was Tino Delgado ever alive? (laughs) Okay, most people aren't going to know what in the world. (laughs) Um, Maybe you have a a jingle. Maybe you have a recording that you can play so that people will know what this thing is that you're mentioning. Tina Delgado is alive. Those are the words, and it was a woman's voice recorded in Los Angeles at KSJ, and it was used on the air by the real Don Steele, and there's there's so many stories about that. I'm not sure what is true, but I don't think Tina Delgado is a real person. Well, she wouldn't be living today if she were a real person in 1965, but it was a clever, you know, it's like, uh, here's an old oldie. Jimmy Durante, no one's going to know who in the hell is Jimmy Durante. But he used to say, good night, Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are, you know. And I think that Tina Delgado is alive as a Jimmy Durante type of line. It really may not have any meaning, but it's unforgettable in the history of time. Well, that's a great way to end it. My guest has been Woody Gullard.
He's author of KHJ Los Angeles, Boss Radio Forever, 1960s Rock and Roll Radio History. It's available on Amazon. For everything about Woody Gullart, go to bossradioforever.com, and you can follow him on Facebook at Boss Radio KHJ. Woody, thanks for being on the show. I am so happy that you got in touch with me, and I'm because I, I never really talk about this, and I thank you for giving me the chance to talk about KHJ. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel. Tina Delgado is alive, alive! 93 KHJ!